So if you've been with us, uh, you know we're going through a series uh, that we're simply calling How the Gospel Changes College. And tonight, it feels appropriate for some of us, right before Valentine's, we're looking at how the gospel changes suffering. And we're, we're looking at it uh, through the lens of the I Am Statements of Jesus. And tonight we're in John 11. I'm going to dive right in because it's a bit of a longer than normal uh, scripture reading, but I want to read it all to kind of get the fullness of how the Lord meets us in our suffering and what he means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So John chapter 11, 1 to 6, 17 to 26, 32 to 44 is printed on your bulletin. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent to him Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he came, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved or troubled in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man not also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let me pray for us. I want to dive in to this passage and our theme tonight. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life, that even now you are the risen Lord, uh, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us praying for us, knowing us, knowing our pain and suffering, knowing the places of our lives that maybe feel like forever ago, but we still think upon those days as really painful, or maybe where we find ourselves uh, feeling that way even tonight. Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us, show yourself to us as the wounded healer, as the one who moves toward us in our suffering and pain, as the only one who knows what to do with it. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us and trust ourselves to you in that way in faith and repentance and in hope of the glory to come and what you have begun to do, but yet will one day fully and finally do in making this world and making us as we should be. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Jonathan Franzen. He wrote a book called The Corrections That Changed My Life. I was once an English major and then switched two more times in college, but still have a a love for English. But he wrote this piece, this is, gosh, probably 10 years ago now, called, uh, it was in the New York Times, it was called Technology Provides an Alternative to Love, where he's making the case about how, and we've come so much further since when he wrote this, of how technology, social media, our phones really can feel like intimacy, love substitutes in their own way. And here's what he says, just follow along with me. He says, I may be overstating the case a little bit. Very probably you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast between the narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Siebold likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody. And she has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters on the mirror of our self-regard. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight And you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all. Things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in control, funny, likable person. And listen to what he says. Something realer than likability has come out in you. And suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly there's a real choice to be made. Not a fake consumer choice between an Android or an iPhone, but a question. Do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? What I love about John 11 is we get to watch Jesus, in these words, get down in the pit and love his friends. And it's the way that he continues to love us still to this day. But the way I want to frame it and thinking about how does the Lord meet us, how does the gospel change our suffering, how does the Lord meet us in our suffering, is I want to kind of look at three things that Jesus does in this passage, and we're going to go that way. I want to ask the question first, why he waits two days? Second, I want to ask the question why he weeps. What does it mean that he weeps? And then the last one, just to get that third W in, is why he wakes Lazarus from the dead, why he raises Lazarus from the dead. So that's what I want to do, why he waits, why he weeps, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. So first thing with me for a second about why he waits. And what I really want you to see is that when when this passage, when John is talking about his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, I want you to see that they're more than Instagram friends. They're more than Facebook friends. They're friend friends. Jesus really has, he loves them. He doesn't just love them, he likes them. He enjoys their company. They were really, really close. Jesus has spent time in their house. He's eaten Martha's food. John points out that Mary has been at his feet and smelled them. He slept, most likely he stayed over, usually probably in Bethany. We could eisegete a little. He's probably slept in Lazarus's bed, Jesus not only loves them, he likes them. They're his friends, and he deeply cares for them, which is why verse 6 is so strange. Did you catch it? It's really, really weird that it says he loved them so much. Therefore, he waited two days longer where he was. Why? Here's what I want you to see. Because he loves them, and because he loves us, he cares a lot about where they were and where we are putting our hope and trust. And in particular, he wants them not to put their hope in what he can do for them, 
but rather he wants their hope to be securely placed in who he is to them, his love for them. This is so much, if you are a Christian, this is so much of the Lord's gentle, patient work in our lives is to move us from wanting Jesus to do what we want him to do. It's Valentine's Day. We could just leave it at that. Lord, why? To move us from wanting Jesus to do what we want him to do to wanting Jesus for who he is and for him to become who and what we want. I was thinking about it like this, two, two songs that in my Christian life that I sang that were very memorable to me. Uh, I became a Christian right before my freshman year of high school. My freshman year of college was a disaster. Most of that was depression. There was also an impending breakup that was part of it. But I can remember my freshman year really, really struggling. I've shared some of that if you've been around large group this semester, where I was really trying to make this relationship work that wasn't working, but it was an idol in my life. And I can remember being at FCA, freshman year, Carolina, and we're singing a song that was familiar to me called Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. And I can remember by about the 16th refrain of Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. Open the Eyes of My Heart, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. I want to be like, I don't want to see you. I'm mad at you. I couldn't name that as an 18-year-old. Then flash forward to my first year doing RUF as a campus minister. I'd never heard that song that we just sang. It's not really a song as much as it is a really tough hymn that is beloved if you understand what it's saying, we just sang it, I ask the Lord. Where what John Newton is saying is, Lord, I asked you for more faith. I asked you that I might grow. And what you brought into my life, it seems to me, was suffering. And in the words of that hymn, it's a lot of internal suffering. The whys and the how. And I don't know how to carry this thing. Maybe for you that could be anxiety or depression. Maybe it's just a hard part of your family story. Maybe it is a breakup that you've gone through. But I love that, that, uh, the stanza that talks about, Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Will thou pursue thy worm to death? And then the Lord, we sang it. We didn't sing that stanza, but we sang, Tis in this way the Lord reply, replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. And here's the money line. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. I can remember uh, my second year at Georgia Southern, which is the campus I was previous to here. And the guy at SCAD, his name was Michael Gordon. We had large group the same nights. And we would call each other after. And I remember this one, just a crushingly low turnout for a large group at Georgia Southern. And I can remember calling him up after and just saying, dude, Ministry is, is not going so great. And I vividly remember the reason it was a poor turnout that night, which does affect, I'm 42 years old, still affects me, was there was an Al City John Mayer concert in Atlanta that a lot of my students just were like, this was when Al City was still a thing. A lot of you might even know Al City, and that, just count that as a blessing in your life, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I can remember for a while, I still can't listen to Fireflies without being a little triggered, or even any John Mayer without being a little like, ugh. But I'll never forget what he said to me, because he had also had a smaller turnout that night. And I'll never forget what he said, because it really stuck with me. He said, Sammy, I think Jesus loves me too much to give me a big, large group right now. What he was saying is, Jesus loves me too much to give me the thing that he knows might not be good for me. The reasons I want it might not be good. Even if it is good, he has his own time. Here's another way I want to say it to you. Jesus loves you enough 
to disappoint you in me because he knows it is often, maybe most often, maybe always through that disappointment that we begin to put our hope and trust in him, not in what he can do for us. So that's the first question for for us tonight is where does the Lord, where does Jesus need to break our schemes of earthly joy and cross all the fair designs we've schemed that would lead us further away from his heart instead of further into it. So first, why he waits, but then second, why he weeps. And if you caught the passage, Jesus does finally show up. And it's a little awkward. Like Martha runs out to meet him, like the extrovert doer thinker that she is. And it's interesting that Jesus meets her with truth, the truth of the resurrection and the life. Mary, who I relate more to, the more maybe introverted feeler kind of beer, she's still sitting in the house. And yet when Jesus meets her, he meets her with tears. He knows the way, he knows what we need. But it's still that awkwardness of Jesus is showing up, he's late, what in the world is he going to say? I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral, but if you've ever especially been to a visitation, it can be some of the most awkward time because as you're thinking about what in the world can I possibly say to take this pain away? This came home to me about 10 years ago. A fraternity brother, uh, his dad had just suddenly died, and I remember driving up to Boiling Springs, South Carolina, to go to the visitation and I'll never forget making my room. It was a crowded visitation. And I'll never forget kind of making my way around this corner of a room, standing in line, just thinking, what am I? I haven't seen this friend. He was a college friend. I hadn't seen him probably in, gosh, six, seven years. What am I going to say to possibly take his pain away? And I'll never forget making my way around the room. And I finally got to him. His name is Matt. And we just locked eyes. And he just wept. And then I wept. And then we just hugged for what felt like five minutes. And I like the way that one guy says it. It would be better than to say that Jesus wept. It would be better to translate it into Jesus burst into tears when he saw the tears of his friend, Mary. And that's the question is, is what is Jesus, what are his tears? What kind of tears are they? Why was he crying? Let's say what they're not. They're not sentimental tears. He's not been listening to the latest Bonnie Bear. He's not been listening to the latest whatever your sad boy or girl music is and just crying, you know, like liking to feel sad, which is relatable. They're not uh, tears of regret, like the end of Schindler's List, where Oscar Schindler is saying, I could have saved so many more. I could have done more. They're not tears of sentiment or regret. Well, what are they? I think they're tears about three things. First, they're tears about death. Do you know that Jesus hates death? Like, no shade, actually shade to the Lion King and Elton John, the circle of life. No. Death is not a natural part of life. It is one of the great enemies. It is a result of sin. Jesus hates it. That's why that that word in 38 is interesting. I'm not a big, here's what the Greek means guy, but it was a word that was often used of massive animals that were were, were stirred and troubled. And that's the word that John describes Jesus because he's angry at death. He hates death. They are angry tears, righteously angry tears. But then, two, he's also sad about his friend's death. They're tears of compassion. Like, if I could convince you of one thing tonight, this is the goal, that Jesus really does care about you. Like, he really does. Every big and small part of your story, Jesus has compassion for you and for me. Another way we could say it is Jesus isn't indifferent 
to our sadness and sufferings, I think sometimes that's not how we see him. I think if we're being honest, we see a Jesus that's a bit more robotic or a bit more like, you know, like doesn't have emotion and compassion. I think, I always think about it, if you're a Seinfeld person, the way that I think about it is uh, Soup Nazi. Have you ever seen the Soup Nazi episode? If you know that episode, they're trying to get the best soup in town, but there's a whole ritual to it where you have to, to face what they call the Soup Nazi, who you have to get in line and order it the exact right way. And if you don't, he, he, slap, you know, he basically says, no soup for you, get out of my store. I think sometimes that's how we see the Lord Jesus. But he's not indifferent and he's not impatient. He has infinite compassion for you and for me. There are tears at death, there are tears at his friend's death, but there are also tears at his own death. It's interesting if we kept going in John 11, Caiaphas, one of the religious leaders, they asked him the question, what do we do with this Jesus? And he has this interesting line where he basically says, well, if he raises from the dead, then we'll have a different problem on our hands. But you can, you can only imagine as Jesus is rolling away the stone from Lazarus's tomb that he, he knows what's coming for him. He knows his own tomb. He knows his own death. And so there, there are tears of anger, there are tears of compassion, but there are also tears of grace that he is going to put himself in his death in our place. But here's the thing that I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't just make us wait. He also weeps with us. He weeps with us. One of my favorite scenes in all of Narnia is in The Magician's Nephew, and it's Diggory, and it's a young boy, and all Diggory wants is for Aslan to show up. His mother is dying, and all Diggory wants is for Aslan to show up at his mother's deathbed and stop her from dying. And there's this scene at the end where Aslan does show up. And here's how the conversation goes that that happens between Aslan and Diggory. Diggory says, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. It's funny, God's Bible study, Lizard Thicket, last Friday, we ran into a guy who was a mentor for me for a season. His name's Chad. And I'll never forget this conversation. This is probably 10 years ago now that Chad was helping me process. If you, some of you know this story, some of you don't. Uh, part of how I became a Christian, part, my biggest story is my dad left our family when I was 12 through a drug addiction. And so we were talking about facing some of that pain. And I'll never forget, we're in the Starbucks. It's no longer uh, in the Vista. <laughs> Thankfully, it's no longer. Because he looks at me and he says, Sammy, If we're ever going to face this pain, we're going to have to go back and hold 12-year-old Sammy's hand and look him in the eyes and say, I'm so sorry, but Dad's not coming home. And I'm not a big charismatic guy. But it was as if the Lord said, yes, and I want to be there with you just to weep with you. Where does the Lord in your life 
want to take you by the hand to a painful part of your life and just weep with you there. Maybe it's now. Where does Jesus want to weep with you? I love the way that one guy says it. He says, we sing all the time, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? But we also get to sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would cry with you? He meets us with his tears. He meets our tears with his own. So why he waits, why he weeps, but then lastly, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. I love the way that that Keller points out that most of us go to the grave and then cry, but Jesus cries and then goes to the grave. And in the same way, one of our kids might call us to to come out, if you know little kids. Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of his grave. What is Jesus doing? We've mentioned this, I think, at the very beginning, Bread of Life. The miracles are more than Jesus demonstrating his power. The miracles are more than Jesus demonstrating uh, his his unique place as the Son of God, they are also what we could call foretastes or samples of what he's come to do. Uh, I worked at Starbucks for a second, and I don't know if Starbucks still does this, but we, one of the things that I loved and hated about the job was we were always having to put out little samples so people could taste the ice lemon pound cake, which RFP is, I think they changed the recipe, taste the little treats. Or if your family is a food family, like my family was a massive food family, so we didn't know how to do anything in celebration except to go to a nice dinner. And there's always that moment that I get to enjoy now as someone of age where the waiter brings the wine and they do the awkward dance of like they pour a little bit of wine and you're supposed to know what you're supposed to do, which is swirl it and sniff it and be like, oh, yes, please bring me your finest bottle. Yes, this is a part of what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is what I've come to do. I've come to end suffering. I've come to end sadness. There's a day coming, he promises in Revelation, where he will wipe away every tear of every one of us that belongs to him. And I love this image of Lazarus being unwrapped. This is the gift that we need. He calls him out. He's in the grave cloths. And Jesus says, unwrap him. And what is the gift? It's that the Lord is with us in our suffering. It's that the Lord, and I don't want to make too much of, we don't always know this, and I think this side of heaven, we won't always know it. But we can trust, even when we don't know it, that the Lord is working in and through our suffering. And it's the gift that one day In his healing presence, all suffering will fully end. I don't know, I'll close with this. I don't know if you've been watching The Last of Us, uh, HBO Max, new show, apocalyptic. It's weird in the sense of it's it's a zombie apocalypse, but it's through fungi. So you have these monsters that have like mushroom type heads. But the central story is based on a video game that I never played, but I'm loving it so far. It's based on the central story of Ellie and Joel. Joel has lost a daughter at the very beginning of the outbreak, but he's found Ellie, who is this unique, the only person that they've met who's been bitten but didn't turn. So there's something special and healing in her blood. And in the last episode, sorry if you haven't seen it, it is a little bit spoilery, I'll do my best. But it's a beautiful episode where they meet Henry and Sam, who are on the run in Kansas City. Henry's done something kind of bad but good at the same time, but his younger brother, Sam, is deaf and just getting over leukemia. But it's the deaf part that's important. 
there's a scene right at the end where they just survive this crazy zombie kind of outbreak. They're running from zombies, but they make it. They get to this motel, abandoned. And there's this beautiful scene between Ellie, the young girl, and Sam, the even younger boy. Ellie's like 12, Sam's like 8. And Sam can't speak. He's deaf. But he can write on this little pad. And he writes, because Ellie presents his real self-confident, kind of a sarcastic teen, preteen. And Sam just writes, are you ever afraid? And she takes his pad, and she wipes it, and she says, I'm afraid all the time. And she wipes it again, and this is the line that got me. And I'm afraid that I will end up alone. The promise of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. So if you belong to him, you've been united to him by faith. I can promise you, you will never be alone. The Lord is with you. And he is for you. And there's a day coming as we wait and hope, not minimizing any suffering, not minimizing any pain. But as Paul says, we grieve as those with hope. That there is a day coming where he will take our tears and he will wipe them away from our face. I love the way that one old church father says it. Jesus, he prays, but he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he causes tears to cease. Let's pray. Our Lord, would it be so? I don't presume to know where all of us are with you, but Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us as the resurrection and the life. Lord, I know that faith in you doesn't mean we have all the answers, but it does mean we have you. And I pray that you would meet us in our suffering in this way. Whatever that looks like, whatever that suffering has been, Lord, would you meet us with your own tears? And would you meet us in it? We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us our last song.